This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Here on the show, we try to cover all the different facets of your life where you might need a little oil to get all those cogs working well together again. And one of those cogs is your workplace. You probably spend a majority of your time at work, so we want to make sure that you have all the tools that you need to have an enjoyable, productive experience while you're at work. So today, I've compiled a few interviews from a few different experts to help you have a healthy, happy work experience. We are going to warm up with an interview with the expert Matt himself, a nice coaching corner I found on how to be happy and motivated at work. And Matt is going to do an activity with us to help us identify what drives us and what motivates us at work. If we are going to take on the idea that 70% of the workforce in the United States is disengaged, there's obviously something that uh, is not working right, right? So we have to figure out what that is. And I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people. Or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. What is it that's driving you or not driving you? We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to to just kind of walk through with you and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So as you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people – is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you – you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, then we might be missing something. Right, We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. 
Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a, a more spiritual connection to something, and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing, what are what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more um, you know, with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be – I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because you know you move from sales to customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that ugh, are angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. That might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much or – You've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing, and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it, but the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creator as in Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. Okay. No, the real creator. And he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up. But it's hard. It's a hard thing for me. And But then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping. <laughs> Wasted time. But man, it allows me to do what I love to do. And it allows me to be with people that are great. And it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral, what would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life. I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped, how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Leanna Tan. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Matt just got us warmed up for our discussion today on a happy, healthy work experience. He did a little warm-up activity with us to help us identify what our drivers are at work. So when you think of yourself at your very best, who are the people surrounding you and what emotions are you feeling? If you can key into that and replicate it daily at your job and even at home, you'll have a happier, more productive work experience. Okay, now that we're all warmed up, let's jump into the meat of today's episode. I'm going to play for you this interview with Roger Dean Duncan, who has a big long list of qualifications to talk about work and leadership advice. So this first part of the interview, he's going to teach us how we can stay ahead of the game and find our value at our jobs so that we can be an asset rather than a liability for our employers. Dr. Duncan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. You bet. Now, as, uh, as we kind of get into this, you know, change is constant. It's not going away. Um, and it seems like it's actually happening more. <laughs> Maybe this technology thing's enhancing, I don't know, vitalizing change. But how are we supposed to approach it as an employee, as a leader? How do we manage this constantly changing world and still seem productive and be productive? Well, you're, you're right that change is not only constant, it's always going to be with us. And I believe it is happening faster than it used to. You sense and that, techn- yeah. Oh, absolutely. And technology is a big part of that. Somebody said that... Uh, Change is happening so fast now that the future is already, or excuse me, the present is already disappearing by the time we notice it. <laughs> yeah, and it's in our rearview mirror. That's interesting. Well, yeah, and that's not that's not just in terms of the latest iPod or iPad. Right. I mean, that's in terms of, of all sorts of things. So people struggle with change, and I think one of the big reasons people struggle with change is because it brings about stress, and yeah. people resist we run from it. Yeah. I don't know that we uh, resist change per se. I think it's the stress that change brings. In fact, even happy change can be stressful. Just ask anybody who's ever planned a wedding. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so uh, that's what we resist. Yeah, I think um, you're right. It's, it's actual, and that's like, it's, I guess the stress is from not knowing. The stress is from not feeling adequate, I guess, from being tested? The stress is is uh, having to abandon our current comfort zone and replace it with another. Yeah. The, the stress is about making that transition from something we know to something that is uh, less known. Mm. Uh, so even if we're moving to a new neighborhood or changing jobs and we and we want to change a job for whatever reason, mm-hmm. there's still a certain amount of stress involved. Uh, but we can create an environment where the change is friendly toward us, we are friendly toward the change, and we are part of bringing about positive change rather than being a victim to somebody else's change. I love that. And, and that kind of orientation, frankly, if we're an employee, makes us more valuable to the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell my clients that the second most expensive thing that can happen in your organization is when your best and brightest people quit and leave. Now, that's very expensive, but it's only the second most expensive. The most expensive thing is when your best and brightest people quit and stay. Uh, Because they're not engaged. Uh, yep. Some of them are what I'd call road warriors. Presenteeism, on act- yeah. 
Yeah, re- retired on active duty. <laughs> and they, they show up, they get paid, they attend the meetings, uh, but they're really not contributing in the way that they could or should. Yeah. Now, that's not only detrimental to the organization, that is a horrible way to live, it seems to me. So if somebody's driving home today, they may be one of those road warriors. They may be there, going to work every day, know they've got four more years before they can retire. Right. And they're just filling a space. Uh, and so what should they be doing? Because you're say, like, like you say, it's... It's not a healthy place to be. Well, it's not at all. Uh, a number of things. In, in my book, as you alluded to earlier, I, I talk about what I call the four T's. And I'll, I'll tee this up, no pun intended here. Uh, about 35, 40 years ago, I wrote an article for a national magazine. I interviewed more than 20 prominent Americans, and I asked all of them a single question, only one question. What's the mark of an educated person? Hmm. And many of the respondents went to great lengths emphasizing behaviors and relationships. Not a single one of them mentioned degrees or certificates. And these were people who you know, were very well known. I, I interviewed Norman Rockwell, the artist. Hmm. I interviewed Margaret Mead, the anthropologist. I mean, these were, these were good thinkers. Not a single one said anything about degrees or certificates. Uh, what they talked about was about behaviors and relationships in place of titles and stature. Oh, I love and that. And that's, that's the foundation of this change-friendly leadership framework that I use, and I've used it for about 40 years. And the four T's are think-friendly, talk-friendly, trust-friendly, and team-friendly. And I'll tell you a little bit about think-friendly first. Yeah. Um, some some of the, your listeners may recognize the name of Arthur Fry, uh, but there's a better than average chance that uh, we've all benefited from his ingenuity. Art was a scientist at the 3M company many years ago, and he and one of his co-workers developed uh, or mixed this batch of adhesive with an unusual molecular molecular structure. Say it fast five times. <laughs> um, and this yielded a glue that was strong enough to cling to objects, but it was forgiving enough to peel off without doing any harm. Hmm. Now, nobody at 3M had figured out a way to use this, it's, what yeah. I call sti- sticky but not too sticky yeah, substance. The tweener glue, throw- yeah. Yeah, they started to throw it away. Well, Art sang in his um, church choir, and he noticed that a lot of his fellow choir members would insert little handwritten notes into their sheet music to remind them of, uh, you know, how to do a certain part of the music, but these notes would fall out. And then he had this idea. I wonder if I could use that batch of adhesive that we're about to throw out. So he spread it on a bunch of paper and cut it up into little tiny pieces Mm. and gave it to his choir friends, and they used them. And, well, long story short, this was the precursor to one of the biggest... um, products in 3M history, the post-it note. Now, here was a guy who was think-friendly. He was willing to, and this is a cliche, think outside the box. In fact, he later said, I don't even think there is a box. (laughs) And uh, I I believe mindset matters. Yeah. And it's it's not just about playing games with yourself. It's about realizing 
that we all have God-given gifts, and most of us don't realize how many gifts we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we buy into somebody else's view that we are limited in some way, and that can really hamstring us. I'm thinking of my own son, who's 40 years old now, but when he was in the fourth or fifth grade, we went to school for the parent-teacher night, and we're visiting with his teachers, and one of his teachers said, you know, your son is a wonderful young man, he's so polite, but I don't really think he's going to be able to handle the work, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to push him too hard. And well, you know, like most parents, we thought our, we thought our son was really bright. And we said, well, you know, we think he's bored. Give him more work. She said, oh, no, I don't want to frustrate him. So she would not give him more work. Oh, man. All, of his, all of his other teachers, he had five teachers, all of his other teachers gave him more work. He started making straight A's in their class and still struggled with this teacher. Wow. Well, since that time, our son made nearly all A's as an undergraduate. He made straight A's in his MBA program. He um, speaks six languages and is a diplomat with the U.S. Foreign Service. Hmm. I, I think he snapped out of it. Yeah, I think he got it. Yeah. Sounds like an underachiever it. to me. Yeah. Well, but if he had bought in to that mindset right. that he was limited, or if we had, uh, you know, it, we, we shudder to think where he might be. And I think a lot of people in the workplace, because of their, somehow they equate their value according to their parking place or the size of the lamp on their desk or the title they have, and they limit themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems um, like sometimes the systems themselves, don't they? I guess the thinking gets systematized in companies where, you know, people are like, well, that's not my job or that's not right. my department. And, and exactly. so it almost dumb, it, it's almost like the system itself starts to dumb us down. Well, there is no doubt about that. In fact, with a lot of organizations, they use this term, we hire the best and the brightest. (laughs) And I believe they really try to do that. If you talk to their recruiters, they go out to the universities and they have high standards and they really try to hire the best and the brightest. The trouble is, in a lot of organizations, the organizational culture promptly dumbs them down. Totally. And so I tell my clients, look, if you're going to have these cultural characteristics, that lead to these unintended consequences. You can save yourself some money and hire the C students. Right. Don't hire the A students. Don't hire the people who've had good internships. Don't hire people who score well on your test. Just hire, you know, hire the, the average people because yeah. that's what you're doing to them. You're going to dishearten them. Yeah, and then and, they're going to leave they anyway. And, and the, A's, yeah. the A's have the ability to leave, I guess. Well, yeah, and one of two, a couple of things will happen. You will either dumb them down, and they will get discouraged and disengaged, be disengaged, but they will stay there indefinitely oh, and, and just... not perform at the way that you would like. Or you're running a farm club for your competitor. Exactly. Either way, either way, you lose. Yeah. Oh, I love that. that. I mean, I so, think that pretty much typifies the the pretty you know prototypical corporate America. We just it's it's a farm. We're running a farm team for a competition. Well, that's true, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can actually engage creative thinking. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and another um, behavior that that I talk about is talk friendly skills. This is about creating an environment 
where people feel safe and confident in challenging the status quo. Love that one. Can in we, Rod, can we come back to that one? We, we need to take a break, but when we come back, I want you to get in-depth into the talk-friendly. I mean, if I can engage my company all of a sudden, and I've got this creative thinking, and I know how to engage, it sounds like it's a great combination. We will be back with Dr. Roger Dean Duncan, uh, author of Change-Friendly Leadership, and uh, he'll enlighten us with the rest of the four T's right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Liana Tan, and this is The Matt Townsend Show. Today, we're talking about all the facets of the workplace, and specifically, how to keep you in the tip-top shape as an employee. So we just listened to the first part of Dean Duncan's interview with Matt about being an asset to your employer rather than a liability. I mean, you never want to be that person that comes to mind first when they think, "Mm, who do we need to let go of to help strengthen our institution? I think one really interesting thing that he brought up in the last interview was that it's very expensive when a company's best and brightest people quit and leave. But the most expensive thing for a company is when its company's best and brightest people quit and stay. And that's pretty profound. It's true. Just showing up to work doesn't really help your workplace at all. In fact, it can pull them down because they're pretty much just wasting money on a log. To really be an asset to your company, you need to stay engaged in the cause and in what you can bring to the table, which is what Dr. Duncan is talking all about today. He brought up this concept he calls change-friendly leadership. And in this next segment, he's going to talk about what that really means and delve into what he calls the four T's or four behaviors of good workplace leadership. Well, what are they, Dr. Duncan? Are they tips? Are they keys? What are you calling them? They're behaviors. Behavior. Oh, that's right, because of the behaviors that, that matter. And, right. And they're all, they seem to also be core to building relationships that are healthier, too. Relationships in any venue. Well, uh, as a parent, as a, as a spouse, as an employee, as a leader, any place you're dealing with human beings. And the first one was to think creatively. Uh, being able to kind of think out of the box. And the next one you started talking about was to talk friendly. Well, talk friendly is creating and maintaining an environment where people, including yourself, are comfortable and competent in challenging the status quo, in speaking up, in talking openly about issues that need to be discussed. And these are behaviors that some of us, uh, in fact, a lot of us think we have because Everybody can talk. Right. But just because you're talking <clears throat> doesn't mean that you're getting where you'd like to get. And this isn't at all about manipulating. Right. Uh, I tell the story that as a young boy, I used to enjoy spending hours with my grandmother working on jigsaw puzzles. And she liked puzzles of outdoor scenes. And these were particularly challenging because the colors and textures right. of nature often merge and all that. And Well, my childish inclination was to try to win at solving the puzzles. But when I tried to argue or debate, I missed opportunities for progress. I discovered that 
my piece of the puzzle that I had was both valid but limited. It wasn't the whole picture. Yeah. And when I became curious and started to inquire about other puzzle pieces, the ones that my the grandmother was looking at, I began to see a fuller picture and was better able to collaborate in solving the problem. Now, when, in, terms of lead, in terms of leader behaviors, some of the most effective leaders I've ever been around, and I've been around a lot of them over the past 40-plus years, are those who not only tolerate feedback, they welcome feedback, they solicit feedback. And when somebody disagrees with them, rather than some knee-jerk reaction of wanting to rebut or overpower or pull rank, they might say something like, terrific, you see it differently. Help me understand your perspective. Yeah. Now, when people realize that they're genuine, they're authentic, they're not playing gotcha, and they really do want to learn, then more and more people are comfortable and challenging them. And then you have smart people helping smart people work smarter. Right. That's probably what makes <laughs> corporations so difficult because all of a sudden you might have a new leader coming in. We're going to create new change. And if they're not listening, if, they, if they're mm-hmm. trying to just force their way without even at least getting buy-in from everyone right. else, it's going to get ugly. Right. Absolutely. It will get ugly. And then you know, typically... I mean, we've all seen the cycle. A new leader comes in, and they've, they've got some preconceived notions. They're not really good at listening, and they try to impose their will on people. And some people will succumb. Others will play the game for a while, and then they start peeling off mm-hmm. from the organization. Right. And then the organization has that brain drain where you've got some really smart people who've learned a lot and contributed a lot, and they don't, they're not comfortable there anymore, so they're leaving. Right. Rather than engaging the people. That's great. And I've seen, I've seen that with leaders. A, a turnaround uh, CEO that I worked with many years ago went into an organization that was hemorrhaging badly in terms of financial things. And rather than impose his will on people, he went in and, and uh, was constantly asking questions. And he was a very smart guy. He was not playing gotcha. He mm-hmm. genuinely wanted to know what got the organization in, in its dire straits. He didn't fire people. He didn't bring in new people. He kept the same people. And within 12 months, the turnaround was so profound financially that it became a Harvard Business School case study. Mm-hmm. Now, the only thing different... It's a big thing, but the only thing different about this leader was that he engaged his people, and his primary behavior was that he listened with empathy. He really wanted to understand. And when when people sensed that he was genuine and wasn't playing games with them, wasn't mm-hmm. playing gotcha, wasn't trying to corner them, wasn't trying to be the smartest guy, always the smartest guy in the room, he was able to tap the ingenuity of the people who had always been there, unlike the previous leaders who were constantly just ordering people around and people were responding in a robotic way, and they were not getting the benefit of people's ingenuity. Yeah, right. So, th- this is that different. You know, this applies to parenting, too. Yeah, right. You know, parenting is on-the-job training. Right. Uh, you know, there's no book on be, it. I mean, there's a million books, but they don't come with your kid. 
Well, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I found that as I was raising my children, I'm like every other parent, I made a lot of mistakes, and, and I learned a lot. But I found that those times when I would look one of my children in the eye, especially during those teenage years, and by the way, I'm happy to say I'm a survivor. <laughs> you I survived? I survived four teenage. Oh, yeah, that's and my, parent, my parents survived me, too. But some of those times when I was most effective with my children was when I would say something like, you know, I've never been a dad before. This is my first time, mm. and I'm doing the best I can. And let's work, let's work on this together. Well, that actually – I'll oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that sounds like you're build, that that's nothing more trustworthy than that. I mean that sounds like it's I, I can trust you because you're being real with me. Well, yeah, we need to be vulnerable. We need to be willing to be vulnerable. And somehow in the workplace, we have this uh, terrible notion that, you know, if we're the the boss, we're supposed to know everything. Right. And I'm sorry, that just isn't so. No. I remember uh, the conversation I had with my son the day he turned 16. And I said, well, big 16, yeah, I can remember when I was 16. I started rattling off my experiences, and I looked at his eyes, and they were glazing over. It was like, okay, Dad's playing his home movies again, and I stopped myself mid-sentence. And I said, you know, it's been a long time since I was 16. What's it like for you to be 16? And he had that look in his face like, okay, Dad, is this one of those consulting questions? Hold on, someone's going to get hurt here. That's That's right. right. You go pull out a flip chart or something. (laughs) I think he sensed that I really wanted to know, what's it like for you to be 16? And he opened up his heart, and he started telling me, started talking to me. Now, we already had a good relationship, mm-hmm. but that one conversation, I remembered all these, as I told you, he's 40 years old now. Yeah. I remember all these years since that time. That one conversation, I think, really made a difference. It sounds like everybody because, wants that, too, don't we? I mean, we all want to have our opinion be heard and matter, and we just want someone to ask and then listen. Well, sure. What a and, great and often, and often in the workplace, the smartest person in the room is the newest person in the room. Yeah, right. Now, yes, they're very green, but if they are asking what some folks call naive questions, many of them preceded with the word why, mm-hmm. if the answer is because we've always done it that way or because we said so, you're, you're behind already. Yeah, you're, you, yeah, you're, you're in trouble. You're already in a deficit position. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I didn't feel good about it when somebody said to do something. Because, because I'm your father. So. That's right. Yeah. I wanted to know why. Mm-hmm. And you know, not in an argumentative way. I wanted to understand why. Yeah. Now, you know, we have commitment issues. We have um, Compliance issues. I do happen to do a lot of work in the nuclear power business. Now, you, you know, you want you want compliance there. Yeah, that's, that's one we really want to get down. That's, down. A, that's a good thing. <laughs> but I was talking not long ago with a senior guy, uh, an engineer at a nuclear station, and uh, I was trying to help him understand that he needed to work with his people so they had commitment. And he said, you know, I don't really care about this soft and warm and fuzzy commitment stuff. I just right. want them to comply. And I said, well, well, that's important. That's really important. But he, he didn't see the difference. Yeah. And I noticed on the wall or on the shelf behind him, he had pictures of his family. I said, are those your little boys? He said, yeah. I said, tell me about them. So he flips into dad mode, and he's telling me all about the boys. And I, I said, now, do these little guys, uh, I said, do you have seatbelt laws in your state? He said, oh, yeah. I said, well, these guys 
use uh, car seats? He said, oh, yeah. We, and I get in the back of the SUV, and we go through this little routine like they're astronauts, and we, you know, check this, check this, check this, and buckle them up. I said, well, that's great. That sounds like fun. I said, I guess you do that because you don't want a state trooper to pull you aside and give you a citation. He said, that never occurred to me. I said, well, why do you go to all that trouble? He said, well, because I love my boys. I said, that would be commitment. There you go. You know, you are complying, but for a higher purpose. Not just because somebody told you to, because you care about your boys. So when you start creating an environment in your workplace where people understand why you do certain things, you will be amazed at how much more committed they will become. And also, if you have these open and honest discussions about why, you might discover that some of them are doing fake work. That doesn't mean they're deliberately doing it. But some of your policies and procedures have led to a lot of activity that aren't really activities that aren't really adding value. Right. So, you know, there's no downside to open and honest communication. Love it. Call it talk talk friendly behavior. What what are some of the uh, what are the other two T's? We've got about three minutes or so. What? So thinking, talking. What are the other two T's? Well, trust friendly and team friendly. Hmm. Trust-friendly behavior is creating an environment where people trust each other. Now, trust seems like one of those, well, sure of things. Duh. Yeah. We're, not, we're, not, yeah, we're not talking about trust in the sense of uh, you, you think you can go to lunch without locking your desk drawer. Right. We're talking about trust in the sense of how we deal with each other. Uh, I talk a lot about trust busters, uh, double talk which is very common in the workplace. Yeah. Some people call it spin, yep. using euphemisms, etc. That That is a trust buster. Right. Pulling, pulling rank is a trust buster. Talking behind uh, your back. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the best leaders I know are people who clearly have rank. I mean, a family friend of ours is a uh, former commandant of the United States Marine Corps, mm. but he was famous for using trust-friendly behavior. He didn't try to pull rank on people. He engaged people. And, you know, some other trust busters are playing favorites or giving flimsy feedback and... and uh, uh, Do as I say, the, not as I do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we can all make a list. That's huge. And then team, team-friendly behaviors are about uh, creating uh, working relationships with teams uh, that have a compelling purpose, that have a reinforcing framework. Um, you have reward systems, yeah. information systems. That sounds like the that systems re- kind of side, the kind of the leadership, you know, being able to get everybody to think, talk, and trust. Yes. yes, that's where it all starts to come together. Because when you think about it, we add value in our organizations, uh-huh. not so much by virtue of being able to manipulate a spreadsheet or push the right lever or button, right. but by virtue of how well do we interact with other human beings. And that's what change-friendly leadership is about. And this all goes back to your, I mean, this goes back to that study many years ago, 40 years ago, where it's not about having the Harvard degree. It's it's about your behavior, these behaviors and your relationships that are really going to either produce the fruits of long-term healthy change or not. Right. And I not only give uh, lots of detail on how to do it, I give lots of case studies of real people who have done it 
successfully, it makes all the difference. That's awesome. We're talking to Dr. Roger Dean Duncan, um, who wrote the book, uh, Change-Friendly Leadership, How to Transform Good Intentions into Great Performance. And you can go to his website at drduncan.com. Doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, duncan.com. Um, Dr. Duncan, as we wrap this up, what's the one thing? We always kind of like to end. We have about 30 seconds. What's the one thing that makes that is the biggest thing? What's the one thing you'd leave us with, a challenge that, that really is going to make would, a difference? I would say listening, really listening. And this requires using your eyes and your heart as well as your ears. And uh, effective leaders learn to listen, to understand, rather than to rebut and overpower, and they exercise influence rather than authority. Love it. And listen to yourself as well, right? Listen to your heart. Listen to That's right. You know what the world's telling you. There's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on. Appreciate you, Dr. Duncan. Again, if you want more information about Dr. Roger uh, Dean Duncan, you can go to his website, drduncan.com. Pick up his book, Change-Friendly Leadership. So appreciate him joining us. We'll be back after this break to wrap up the show, give you some tools and a little bit of homework right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. We just wrapped up an interview with Dean Duncan. He talked about the four T's of what he calls the change-friendly leadership framework for the workplace, which are think-friendly, trust-friendly, talk-friendly, and team-friendly. He talked about thinking creatively and making an environment that makes it comfortable for people to have an open discussion and challenge the status quo. And he said that some trust busters that a lot of coworkers and employment leaders fall into are pulling rank, playing favorites, and giving flimsy feedback. I love how he just gave us such specific tips on how to be better leaders in our workplace and how to not be afraid of change so that we can adapt and stay ahead of the game. It really all comes down to seeing our own value in the workplace. And that kind of brings me into what I wanted to talk about for this last part of today's episode. Having a happy, healthy workplace isn't just about your drivers or your behaviors, but it also has a lot to do with your mental health. Sometimes you can run yourself ragged trying to be productive and charismatic and efficient and all these other characteristics of a great employee. But if you're dealing with mental health issues, it can feel like there's always something thwarting your efforts. So to close off this episode today, we're going to listen to an interview with Amy Morin about nurturing and coping with mental health in the workplace. What do you think? How do we, how, how do we identify the risks? What are the risks? Well, you know, um, for a lot of people, it's just the stress in general. When people are stressed out, that you know, they're more apt to get um, more prone to developing mental health problems. And so sometimes it's a matter of just teaching people about stress and 
and having a healthy lifestyle outside of work too can make a big difference and the statistics are something like one in four people probably have a diagnosable mental illness yet the vast majority of them don't even know it and so sometimes it's just a matter of giving people education whether there's you know plenty of online screening tools that people can use and bosses can facilitate that let people take these screenings confidentially that would tell them, hey, you're at risk of depression. Maybe you should talk to your doctor or maybe you should contact a mental health professional. And sometimes, you know, if a boss can have a um, mental health professional come into the office and just educate people, that can make a big difference just to give people an idea of what a mental health problem looks like because the truth is, because it's never talked about, a lot of people just don't know what are the warning signs and what should I be on the lookout for. Oh, it's so true. And then then they're like, Julie's acting weird. <laughs> and then we just – we talk about Julie, but we don't know the fact that Julie's depressed and has been and has been battling it for a year and, you know, it's impacting everyone. It's so – it's so strange how we work. We do it with exercise. Like we'll have – you know, you can see in a business environment where someone will come in and have yoga classes at lunch, but we won't bring on a mental health expert. Right. Yeah, how many businesses do, you know, you have a weight loss challenge and everybody's talking about how to be physically healthy and who's working out and who's losing weight and that sort of stuff. And then, but nobody's talking about, you know, your depression, your anxiety, your Mm -hmm. PTSD, those sorts of things. And and it's just not swept under the rug, unfortunately. Is it, um, I mean, and this isn't a mental health issue, but even even, um, attention deficit disorder and uh, ADHD, and I, and I look at that and I think, some people don't understand why this guy has 500,000 emails and he loves it. And it might right. be because his brain is working perfectly for it and others are overwhelmed with two. It's just – everyone just has a different ability, don't we? We just have a different code and we need to be willing to figure it out. Yeah, because I think too often we place blame. You know, if somebody's struggling or they're stressed out, we think, oh, they just can't handle it. Well, maybe that person has an anxiety issue, and if they just got some treatment, that could really make a difference. Yeah. I mean, we just had – I just had a someone close to me pass away, and it was it was healthy. It was good. They were suffering from Alzheimer's, and and yet it's it's interesting. I mean, death is a big deal, and it's a it's it takes time to process it and and get through it, and I – and I think, yeah, but do you even want to bring it up at work? And because I don't want a lot of people saying stuff. I don't know. But sometimes we hide it ourselves, right? It might not even be that the company's not bringing it in. It's just me personally. I don't want to go there. Right. I think it's all about finding that balance because I think for a lot of us, it's not discussed. And maybe you don't want somebody, you know, during your lunch break to say, hey, sorry to hear about your loss because it brings too much up and you want to separate work and home to an extent. But to know, well, what can you do and how can you stay healthier? How can you educate your employees about what do you do? Death is something that everybody is going to unfortunately deal with at one time or another. So how do you support employees who maybe have to, you know, take time off to go to a funeral or who are actively grieving a loss? Um, And just, you know, letting people know how can you help somebody and what's helpful and what's not because a lot of us don't know. Do you you say something to somebody or do you not? And, And what do you say and how do you say it? And there's a lot of research about just, you know, showing some compassion and how to do that and how it can really go a long ways when you maybe send flowers to somebody who's who's grieving or just to show that you care can really be helpful. Mm, so helpful. And that is your third point in your article in Forbes, Forbes.com is assist employees in addressing the issues, the mental health issues. And that could be, I guess, formal, right? You know, you know, coming in and bring them into your office and 
helping them that way. I, and then I guess some of it's just informal, I guess, just, you know, by the water cooler. Right. I think just teaching, you know, if an um, employer can teach managers just what to be on the lookout for and what sorts of behaviors, to, you know, may indicate somebody's struggling and then how to address it. And then more formally to have some policies. A lot of times people who have a mental health issue, they don't go to therapy because most therapist offices are open during daytime hours. Right. And they say, well, I can't ask my boss to get out of work early every Thursday to go to therapy. So they just don't ever get treatment. But if employers had policies that would say, hey, you know, if therapy once a week is going to help you stay employed here, by all means, we'll make sure it happens. And just being flexible about that stuff can really go a long way. I have seen that with uh, marriage counseling, too, where um, the person couldn't get out of work to go work on their marriage. So instead, they never got the help. And instead, it took them away from work and a cause. I mean, there was a divorce and then now we had to co-parent and it really ended up destroying the guy's workplace anyway. Yeah, and it's such a you know ridiculous concept to think, well, if you just let that person have the time off that they needed when they needed it, you could prevent a lot of problems that way. But I think that's a huge barrier is a lot of people don't just say, I can't get out of work early or I can't go during work hours. It's not an option for me. What do you what do you say, Amy, to um, the person and, – and I just had this happen recently with somebody where the person just doesn't get anxiety. They just don't get it. It's just, it's just weak. I mean, it's just an excuse. Everybody feels anxious once in a while. You just have to, you just have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just get to work. What do you say to that person? How do you yeah. approach that person in your workplace that just doesn't get it? Right, because I hear that with depression a lot too. That yeah. you, know, if you just snap out of it. I think it's a matter of just educating the person that. You know, if this person could knock it off, trust me, they would. And to give them some information, just like diabetes, you don't talk yourself out of being diabetic. That doesn't happen. Or um, that it is a real medical condition and that it needs treatment and a a proper diagnosis and that sort of thing. And that um, with help, people can definitely get better. But that, you know, minimizing it or ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's amazing that we've, we're actually come, we're coming very far, right? I mean, we're it's we're we're making some great strides and at least talking about it a lot more. And yet, for many, it's just it's not even on the radar as an option. Like I, I had a guy once tell me he's too busy to be depressed. And yeah, I, and I thought, what? I mean, if you're depressed, you're you're still depressed, and you can be busy too. But yeah, it's amazing that we still have these sorts of stigmas and stereotypes and thinking that it's somehow your fault if you have a mental illness that it has to do with, you know, you being a weak and that you can't handle, you know, everyday problems in life. It's unfortunate. As a, as a counselor, um, and we can kind of wrap up on that, on this, what, is there hope? I mean, if I'm somebody that has anxiety or depression and I, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to make that my identity and I'm trying to hide it. Um, is there hope if I really go talk to people and bring it out and make it a little more open? How first, how do I do that if I'm suffering from it? And and what really does my outcome look like? You know, I think it's important to remember that, again, probably for every four coworkers you look at, one other person's also experiencing similar symptoms. And so I think to be able to go to HR and say, hey, I'm having some of these problems and um, – 
and I think it would be helpful for me to get treatment, and this is what I would need from you. I think that can really go a long way when you bring it up first. If your boss isn't bringing it up, if you're the one willing to bring it up, I think that that sometimes can help break the ice. And then treatment's really effective. Sometimes medication is helpful. Sometimes therapy is helpful. Sometimes a combination of both. But to at least explore your treatment options rather than ignore it, it can go a long way towards feeling better. And then when you feel better, you know, the world just looks much brighter once you get your symptoms under control and they're very treatable. Oh, I mean, that's the hope, right? And and that, I mean, it's the reality. And, and, right. and, and to not have to do it quietly alone and, and just kind of fight your way through it. I mean, sometimes that'll still be part of it, but to also maybe build a little team around you and know that you've got someone with your back at work, that could relieve a lot of stress. Yeah. And I think if you are the first one to open up and tell some people, I think more than likely than not, people will come to you and open up and let you know, hey, I've also struggled with depression. I just didn't want to say anything, or I've been having similar problems, and or I know my spouse is going through the same thing. You know, almost everybody either has a mental illness or has had one, or you at least know somebody yeah. who does. It's in everyone's life, isn't it, somewhere? Right. Man, yes. powerful stuff. Amy, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there. Um, at, uh, and go everybody, go check out the website, amymorinlcsw.com. And uh, you can also go just look her up on Forbes. She's doing a lot of writing there as well. Also the author, by the way, of the book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, a great resource for all of us. So it sounds to me like nurturing mental health in the workplace is a collaborative effort, and each person has a responsibility in this. Your first responsibility is to manage and be aware of your own mental health state and be knowledgeable about the warning signs. It's our personal responsibilities to address concerns with our superiors. I thought it was interesting that she said for every four coworkers, one other person is suffering from similar problems. So by reporting these things, you're not just helping yourself, but you're probably helping a handful of your coworkers as well. And besides being responsible for our own mental health, we as coworkers are responsible for knowing the risks and warning signs of mental health issues to recognize them and be able to reach out to others when we're seeing them struggling. And as employers, it is actually more worth your time and money to make some schedule flexibility to let your employees get the mental health treatment they need so that they can better help the workflow in your workplace. So lots of stuff we learned today. And I I think to wrap up what all these experts said today in a nutshell, it's that the workplace is about being a team. There are lots of details that go into keeping a machine well-oiled and making sure all the parts are functioning properly. And our mental health, our motives, and our behaviors are huge contributing factors to that. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. I'm Liana Tan. Join me again next time for another great episode of Matt Townsend.